Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group, together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Welcome to Mind Over Murder. I'm Kristen Dilley. And I'm Bill Thomas. We are continuing down our journey in this brave new world that is coronavirus and quarantine and self-isolation and social distancing. And it's been entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Among the new terms I've learned this week are quarantini. I'd never heard of a quarantini before. (laughs) I'm not a big drinker, but we are recording this on a Friday afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of my friends was just espousing virtual happy hour on Facebook page. Yeah, it's a great idea. Well, I I can see it. I can see it. It's very Uh, important we stay connected, even if it's through electronic means, so we can Uh, toast each other's health and wish each other a happy weekend or whatever. From a very safe distance. Uh, We want to thank everybody who has taken a couple of minutes to jot down bonus episode ideas on our Facebook page. Thank you so much for that. You guys gave us some really interesting cases that we should look into. And so we are going to start doing our research and figuring out what is going to work and how we can go about presenting some of these things that you are so interested in to you through our podcast. This week, we get into part three of the Gina Renee Hall case. I think what will prove to be a fascinating conversation with Ron Peterson Jr. discussing the case and his book, Under the Trestle. And because we are all in quarantine mode, if you have ever needed a chance to sit down and read, this is your chance. Pick up that book. Order it from Amazon. There you go. We do support local bookstores, but right now they seem to be closed. (laughs) (laughs) Amazon is going to be your best bet, I think. Well, they sent me coffee today, and I usually buy it locally, but once again, cooped up here in the house, and, you know, coffee is an essential food group. (laughs) Yes, I I don't drink it, but I'm going to take your word for it that coffee is an essential food group. That caffeine lift is essential, especially early in the morning. (laughs) 
Thank you all so much for listening to Mind Over Murder, and we will see you next time. Welcome to Mind Over Murder. I'm Kristen Dilley. And I'm Bill Thomas. And today we're joined by author Ron Peterson Jr. to talk to us about his book, Under the Trestle, the 1980 disappearance of Gina Renee Hall and Virginia's first no-body murder trial. Ron, welcome to Mind Over Murder. Well, thank you, Kristen, and thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you today. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please, professionally? Sure. Uh, I'm originally from the Hampton Roads area. Currently uh, live in the Smithfield area. I'm married with with two kids. And I went to Radford University. Uh, I attended Radford, which is is where Gina Hall went at the time of her disappearance and death. Several years after her, it would have been in the mid-80s. Worked, uh, was a journalism major and then uh, worked as a writer for a period of time and then kind of got sidetracked, worked in advertising, both in a newspaper and television advertising environment. Kept writing the whole time. I had written one other book, which there was, was not a very big market for. In the back of my mind, you know, I, I knew about this story about Gina Hall and I, I guess like anyone, have a good nose for an untold story and set out in, uh, in writing the book, have um, been really happy with the results. It's an excellent book. Um, you know, we are both really enjoying it. What is it about Gina's murder that was so important to you that you needed to tell the story in book form? Well, it was about 84 or 85 when I, when I first heard about it. As you know, the, the murder happened in 1980. And the, uh, the rumor at Radford University, it was kind of what we call an urban myth nowadays, was that there was a former student who had been murdered who was buried somewhere on or around the campus or around the New River Valley and, you know, Radford, Blacksburg, that area. I sort of thought nothing of it, thought it was just a, a kind of an urban myth. One of my roommates who happened to be a criminal justice major one day told me about a lecture he had in a criminal justice class when the professor lectured about the Gina Hall murder case, that her killer had been convicted of first-degree murder without the body. And at the time, that was the first time that it happened in Virginia without a body confession or an eyewitness. And, you know, one of the first few times in the in the country. Then he went on to say that uh, she was believed to be buried in a clandestine grave somewhere around there. Yes, we all, you know, a, a good murder mystery captures our interest. Then as I got older, you know, and, and uh, left Radford, kind of stuck in the back of my mind, you know, I started to think of her more as you get older, you have kids, you know, you think, what if something like that happened to your daughter? Mm-hmm. And uh, having to cross paths with some people that knew her that from her hometown of Coburn, Virginia, out in the western part of the state. We just talked about what a great person she was, what a wonderful family she came from, as well as as running into a few people that knew her murderer, Stephen Epperly, who told quite quite the opposite story about about him. Then over the years, you know, the next 20, 30 years, would, when the internet era kind of rolled around, I'd find myself Googling her name, you know, hoping that her remains had been found. You know, closure is an overused word. And, and I know, Bill, you know, with, with certainly with your situation with your sister, you know, you know that. I, I guess the, the term is resolution. You know, I was hoping there would be some resolution for Gina's family. You know, there hadn't been. And then after a while, my wife said, you know, hey, you ought to write a book about that because I would talk about the case all the time, you know, and share it with people who would then do Internet research and be amazed by it. Started writing a book and took me about two years to put it all together and finally did. Oh, we're both smiling. I'm thinking of your wife saying, in your copious free time, <laughs> I think you should write a book. <laughs> So how did your how did your skill set as a journalist help you in in crafting the book? It's a significant amount of research. 
Yeah, and you know what I found, it was just a matter of, of calling people. I uh, probably 90% of the interviews that I did, you know, the initial contact was over the phone. A lot of them I'd travel and, you know, and sit down with them to, to talk. I found, you know, for whatever reason around this case, people were more than willing to talk about it. But anybody who uh, has a background in journalism, you know, likes to think they can ask good questions and the tough questions. And, you know, we see TV interviews where they're doing that. But what I found was just I get people started talking about it. You know, for example, Everett Shockley, the attorney that, that prosecuted the case. You know, he would he would share all kinds of information. It was just asking him kind of the the routine questions that any any journalist or any writer would, or you know, or even that that you would in a conversation with someone that would found something interesting. And then it was pretty cool that so many people I talked to would say, you know, well, hey, you need to talk to this person as well. And then they would kind of give me a you know an introduction and entree to that person, which which really helped quite a bit. But there have to be some pretty significant challenges in taking all of those different sources and distilling all of that information into a book. What were some of those challenges that you found yourself having to deal with during that process? Well, the um, I would say the the trial, you know, it was a, gosh, the trial went over five, I think six days, kind of condensing all of that into a third of the book, you know, which it takes up. Kind of, kind of like an episode of Law and Order. You know, if you've ever watched that show, the original Law and Order, the longest running show on television, it starts with an introduction of the characters and you, you learn about the crime and then the prosecutors get involved and then the case goes to court. You know, it was a matter of just finding the highlights of each part of that, telling that story. But probably the hardest part, the court, uh, the, the trial transcript is on the public record. It's available um, at the State Library of Richmond because it was a landmark case with the no-body murder conviction. So it's a matter of spending a couple of days reading through that and listening to that and then you know, trying to pick the, the highlights for, for each witness from the trial. It's a fascinating case. So with the 100-plus people that you ended up talking to, did you have contact with the Hall family? I did. Early on, I got in contact with Gina's sister, Delena Hall, who she was living with at the time of, of her murder. She was living with in Radford. Uh, Delena was a graduate student there at, at Radford University. You know, just asked if it was okay if I did that. And if she'd have told me, you know, this is something the family and I want to just forget and put behind us, I'd rather you didn't, then I wouldn't have. She was in a position where she really wanted to have some light shined on on her sister's case, you know, in large part because her remains had not been found. She was very supportive. Over the past year, you know, she and I have probably talked or been in contact about once a week or, you know, several times a week, either, you know, on the phone or, or social media or, you know, I've met her in person several times out in that part of the state. From the Hall family, she is, is the one who's been the most, the most active and kind of out in the forefront. Bill, I guess similar in a lot of ways to you with, you know, with your sister who was murdered in the Colonial Parkway murders, but she's been really the biggest advocate for for her sister. Right. And I know with these cases like the Colonial Parkway murders that stretch on for decades, like ours has, and of course, like Gina's has, you end up dealing with the siblings of the lost loved one because in many cases, the parents are gone. Exactly. And that's that's um, the case with her as well. Gina's father, uh, John Hall, who, um, you know, by every account was just just an outstanding person, was a, a really good former Virginia Tech football player, among other things, and also a state farm insurance agent uh, who was really well known around the state. 
unfortunately he died, you know, with no, um, no resolution as far as, you know, what, what happened to his daughter's remains. It's uh, it's very sad. Do you know if Delena actually ever sat down and read the book? Was she able to get through it? I, I think she has read parts of it. Interestingly, she she has written a book of her own that came out over the past year. It's called The Miraculous Journey. She was actually getting started on it, you know, when I first met with her. Different from mine in that a lot of it is her her emotional and spiritual journey, you know, over the last forty years. She started, you know, for years she she really couldn't couldn't talk about it could and just kind of avoided talking about her sister or, you know, or what had happened. Then over the course of time, became more and more interested and involved and uh, has actually in recent years, it's been a lot of time following up on leads and actually out looking and digging and looking for a clandestine grave. So she's been, uh, she's, she's come to several of the book signings that we've had for the book and presentations that we've given. I was wondering, so, um, I was wondering been, about that. Now, is she comfortable, for instance, if you're in a bookstore or what have you, would you introduce her to people? Would you say that she was in the room? We sure have. Yes, indeed. She's very, very willing to do that. She has done, in promoting her book, she's also done some, some appearances on her own. Uh, she's on social media. If anyone's on Facebook, you know, she's easy to find. Her name's Delana Hall Bodmer. And the site for her book, it's, again, it's called The Miraculous Journey. She is, uh, you know, more than willing to, to talk about it. This past summer had a candlelight vigil in Radford for Gina you know, where, where she got up and gave sort of a, you know, a presentation. So, um, yeah, I think she, especially in recent years, you know, has, has become increasingly comfortable in talking with, with folks about it. I think that's wonderful. And it's funny. I mean, I, I feel like maybe our journeys were a bit in parallel there because listening to the things that Delane has gone through and getting more comfortable speaking out and so on, very, very similar. So you'd mentioned that Delena has actually reached a point where she feels like she can follow up on on leads, which I, th- I think is excellent. Have there been any leads of interest that you can talk about that have come up as a result of the book? There, there have been quite a few on my end. One was a person who back in 1980 thought he saw Steve Epperly along the New River, and I'll just kind of talk in general terms, but doing something that could have been related to disposing of her body would have been the night after the murder. State police resources were brought in to look for that, as well as a few other other sites. There are several leads I've forwarded to the state police um, that they that they handle and don't necessarily give a lot of feedback on. And then uh, then there was another family that owns a farm property in, in that part of the state, the New River Valley, where Delane actually went out and did some searching there. Uh, it's interesting. In, in recent months, Delane has worked with a doctor, and I won't get into him a lot, but his name is Dr. Arpad Bass, B-A-S-S. He's a forensic, forensic anthropologist, has patented a device which he uses to find clandestine graves. It's somewhat controversial. There's, you know, some people in law enforcement that are skeptical of it, but others that really support it. Delena has worked closely with him, actually going to to some sites with him using the device, and then also with cadaver scenting dogs. Yeah, I've heard uh, pe- from people in law enforcement that are in favor of this technology, and others that are pretty skeptical. So I've heard reviews that go both ways on that one. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you interviewed so many people besides Stephen Epperly. Were there other interviews that you wanted but didn't get? There were were some friends that were close to him, 
and I, I won't mention their names. It's it, it's in the book, and they are you know they're certainly on public record, and they were spoken about in the the trial. I would have liked to have, have talked to them. You know, for them, it's it's kind of a, a, a difficult chapter in their life as well. So I definitely would have liked to have talked to the people that were Epperly's friends that were in his circle of friends. You know, that, that at the time of the murder and the night of the murder, like I said, they they declined. And then, uh, you know, you're probably going to ask about Stephen Epperly himself. I, I did try to contact him. Protocol is, you know, someone in prison, you have to send them a letter to get in contact. Did not hear back. And I verified that he had received the letter. And then I tried to go through his sister. One of his two sisters is probably, um, in terms of family members, the closest one to him and visits him fairly often in prison. She passed along a message from me that you know, I want to have a chapter of the book in which he would tell his story. You know, if he had a, an alternate theory or something like that, he could, could express that. But he declined. I think any any um, journalists or newspaper reporters or even television reporters in the years after the murder, pretty negative and for good reason, you know, toward him. And I think because of that, he, you know, was reluctant to, to talk to anybody. If you were, for some reason or another, able to get an interview with him, I, I know that you have a film project coming up. What are the, the key pieces of information that you'd like to get from him? I mean, other than the location of Gina's body, of course. He is. I've heard from law enforcement officers who have interviewed him that he's adamant that, that he was framed, that everybody, and I mean everybody that was involved in the case in law enforcement, framed him. And uh, I, I, I mean, I would like to hear him explain that as well as talk about any other, you know, alternate theory he would he would have. Yeah, that would probably be one of the things that, that I'd want to ask him. I'm so glad that the sound of me rolling my eyes is not something that will show up. <laughs> 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 because if you read the book and I'm not I'm not saying you set out to bury him, but when you lay out the facts, I actually found myself saying out loud reading the book and I really enjoyed it. I found myself saying you know, I'm not sure we need a body here. In other words, of yeah. course, it would be great if we could find Gina's remains. But as you go through all of the circumstantial evidence, it's significant. There's blood and fiber and significant evidence that a violent act took place. I, I do have to remind folks when I talk about the Colonial Parkway murders, which is 1986 to 89, that DNA hadn't come out of the lab yet in 86. In 1980, there might have been a few academic papers about this thing called DNA, but they certainly weren't using it in any kind of forensic capacity in this case, were they? Um, they were not. No, it was just, you know, it was identified uh, Gina Hall's blood as type O blood. And that's what the, the criminologist testified to in, in court with regard to the, the blood evidence. But that was kind of the limit of where you could go with blood evidence back then. It was, Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's fortunate that there was so much other circumstantial evidence. And, you know, there were, I spoke with a few jury members who said as much as anything, you know, some of the statements he made and there were, he never confessed, but there were, I think what an attorney would call an implied admission mm -hmm. when he said things that an innocent person would not say. So there were four, maybe five examples of that that were presented in, you know, in testimony and that Everett Shockley referenced in his closing arguments that I think helped the, helped the jury reach a guilty verdict. Oh, some of these comments that he made early on to friends and people that I think he thought might be supportive in terms of him trying to seek legal counsel and so on. The things that he 
that he said just made him sound so incredibly guilty. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. This remark about, you know, what happens if they can't find the body in the early stages, I, I just about fell out of my chair. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's, yeah, he, um, he goes to that guy's house, Bill Cranwell was his name, you know, to, to get his advice. Cranwell was sort of an older guy, was kind of, he was a successful businessman, but was also savvy about law. His brother was a prominent attorney, Richard Cranwell, who was a, a, a state senator. As you said, after we asked him, he says, hey, when you get a chance, ask your brother if they can do anything to me if they don't find her body. And uh, Cranwell couldn't couldn't believe what he said. Oh <laughs> but then the, um, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, that the big coincidence was that Bill Cranwell was, was a college roommate and good friend of Gina Hall's father, John Hall. So... He was, you know, he was obviously obligated to, to report that comment to the police and ended up being the, the last witness in the trial. <laughs> For the benefit of our younger listeners, I'm going to explain the Paul Harvey reference. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to have to, actually. So Paul Harvey was this longtime newsman with a very kind of quirky delivery, kind of talked like, and that's the rest of the story. He would set up an interesting news story, there'd be a commercial break, and then he'd come back and he would tell you the rest of the story. And he was a very quirky, kind of Midwestern-sounding guy, not a classic broadcaster-type voice, but a fantastic storyteller. And so, <laughs> now, because Kristen teases me about making <laughs> references like that, so I thought, you know, oh, we, better, we better explain who Paul Harvey is. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly and my dad listens to paul harvey all the time but i i don't think i would have known that reference either honestly well i mean for for <laughs> your benefit ron we were talking about gina's case and we were talking about 1980 and her going dance <laughs> dancing and i was referencing the disco era and i said something to Kristen, my partner in podcasting here about her remembering the disco era and then she <laughs> reminds me no, she was three years old or something. <laughs> I, I was a year old in 1980. I was a year old in 19, uh, 1981. So no, I, so I was, I, remember disco. I was humbled. <laughs> As you should have yeah. been. Yes. <laughs> that I was the only and one I, that I, remembered the disco era. Wow. And uh, it's interesting, you know, at this point, 1980, um, and I think I referenced that in the book, but it was, it was the tail end of the disco era. The the soundtrack from Saturday Night Fever was still kind of lingering on the charts. That's right. So, uh, yeah, that that album had a, a successful multi year run. And uh, by the way, for Kristen's benefit, albums are these big square. I mean, <laughs> twelve by twelve, and they have a record. It's a flat pl piece of plastic inside. You know, those are coming back in. I know. Actually, okay. vinyl is coming back. Right. Uh, a number of my students actually have vinyl, and I'm sort of shocked and <laughs> awed at that. Yeah, my 21-year-old my son, Chris, thinks my uh, Rega turntable that I bought in London years ago and my thousands of record albums are very cool now. So I, I feel somewhat vindicated. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that's great. Wow. So turning back to Gina just for a second, and I know you and I have talked about this uh, off the air, but I, I do want to go ahead and get you on the record here. Where do you think Gina Renee Hall's remains are? For people, the law enforcement folks that work the case, you know, there are, are just dozens of different theories. But um, what, what I believe is that 
the night of the murder, when, you know, which it was Saturday night, early Sunday morning, somewhere on the route between the lake and the town of Radford, that Stephen Epperly, for lack of a better word, hid the body or put it in a shallow grave somewhere just to get it out of the trunk of the car until he could kind of collect his wits. And then he didn't become a suspect for another, gosh, another 48 or more hours until he was officially a suspect. So he had that time to go back and get the body, perhaps with an accomplice. One of the things the book points out is his his car was not reliable. It was June and he had a radiator that would overheat. So I'm thinking if he did, maybe he used someone else's car or they came with him. And then at that point, you know, maybe it could have been the Sunday, the Monday or the Tuesday after the murder you know, before the search had really started for her in that area, he picked up the body and took it perhaps to a remote location. He was a big hunter. He hunted on a lot of a lot of private land in the outlying counties around Radford and Blacksburg, you know, out in Montgomery County, Giles County, Floyd County, just really mountainous remote areas that he knew really well. So I think there's a chance he took the body somewhere like that and buried it somewhere that he knew would not be developed. You know, it would remain rural land. I, I think, you know, I think that's her final resting place and that, um, you know, it would be extremely difficult to find, taking into account how remote that part of the state still is. I do have to say, you know, that's just kind of my theory, what, what I know about him and what, what I've heard from other people that investigated the case, as well as people that, you know, uh, search for clandestine graves. Well, it's funny because I feel like they did so much searching in Radford on both banks of the New River and the river itself, the lake. It just seems so likely that a guy like Epperly, with his history as an outdoorsman and all of the, this hunting experience that he had, maybe that Sunday or Monday could have found the time and, as you said, have gone out to a much more remote area of the state and buried the body. And that way, all of this searching that took place that was much closer by to where the car was found is for naught because the body is many, many miles away, could be in a cave or any number of, of hiding places that would be unlikely. And as you said, you're talking about a beautiful but remote area of the state. Well, we've been, you know, we've been talking about the Alexis One of the most frequent questions we're asked here at Mind Over Murder is, how can I help? Thanks to Othram, a leading forensic DNA testing lab for law enforcement, you can get involved and help solve real cases. If you have tested at a consumer genetics company, you can contribute your data to dnasolves.com. The process is easy and confidential. Just two simple steps. Your DNA might be the missing piece that helps solve the identity of an unknown person. Then Mind Over Murder will highlight cases Othram is working on to seek your crowdfunding support for DNA testing to help solve these cold cases. Upload your DNA profile to dnasolves.com. It's easy, free, and confidential. Then join Mind Over Murder as we help families find answers with Othram and dnasolves.com. Do you like our show, Mind Over Murder, and want to create your own podcast? Well then, let us tell you about Anchor. First of all, it's free. And who doesn't love free, right? I like free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. 
You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many more platforms. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I like the sound of that. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Right here. Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started on your own podcast. You can tell them Kristen and Bill from Mind Over Murder sent you. It's estimated that at any given time, there are 90,000 missing persons. And that's just in the United States. Imagine if your loved one went missing. Is there anything that you wouldn't do to try and find them? Would you cross oceans? Spend your life savings? Continually retrace your last known steps, just hoping something jumped out at you. This is Missing Persons, a brand new podcast, and I'm your host, Mike Morford. If you're a true crime podcast fan, you might recognize me from some of my other podcasts, including Criminology, Three Men in a Mystery, and The Murder of My Family. The most important part of hosting a podcast for me is advocating for the cases and the victims I discuss, as well as their families. I've been approached by so many people with a missing loved one asking me if I could help them in any way. And if it was my loved one that was missing, I'd want someone to help me too, so I couldn't say now. And this podcast, Missing Persons, is the result of me wanting to help. In every episode of Missing Persons, you'll hear about a person who disappeared and currently remains missing. In some cases, there are clues to follow and leads to check on. In other cases, it's as if the person just vanished off the face of the earth. And in each episode, you'll hear from someone who's searching for that missing person. And whether they've been looking for 30 days or 30 years, the pain of not knowing what happened to their loved one is real. And the search for answers, a painful one. Missing Persons officially launches in March 2020. Will you join me and become part of the search for answers in these cases? If so, search for and subscribe to Missing Persons right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss an episode. Murphy case. And she also is a a nobody case. Her murderer, Randy Taylor, was convicted um, without having her body present. But we were also remarking the other day when we were talking about the Alexis Murphy case, that, you know, the area that she went missing from, it is it is also remote. There's a lot of places that you can hide a body. So despite a, a huge search for her as well, she also has not been located. And it's just, uh, it's very striking. There are so many places that you can hide a body uh, in the more remote regions of Virginia. You asked me earlier about Epperly, and there were two things I, I generally like to mention, you know, when, when that topic comes up. But, you know, one is just by every account, and again, by people that have interviewed him, police officers and psychologists, what a narcissist he is, you know, I mean, just with, with an inability to 
feel any sympathy or empathy for what her family has gone through. I mean, he's just not capable of it. And then two, you know, I think kind of a simple way of looking at it is he has told this lie for so long that he actually now he might believe that he is innocent because he's, he's told the same lie for so long. And, you know, I, I think a, per, a person can tell a lie so often that before long they, they come to believe it. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is, is just that simple. Yeah, we've talked about this uh, regarding Randy Taylor, too. I was saying the other day that I think for most of us that are somewhere on the moral spectrum between good and evil, but let's say a little bit more towards the good side, it is very difficult for those of us that try to be respectful of other people or have a conscience or do good and worthwhile things, it's very difficult for us to understand that for someone like Epperly or Randy Taylor, who were probably well on their way to the sociopath, very dark side of, of the human psyche, it's really difficult for us to understand that when someone's going to be in jail for the rest of their lives, that they even then couldn't find their way clear to telling law enforcement, their captors really, something that might benefit the family. It's always baffled me. Absolutely. It is It is baffling. So we understand that you're working on a documentary with filmmaker Scott McTavish. And now Scott says it's okay to talk about it. So what can you tell us about the project so far? Well, yeah. And, and in fact, uh, he has, has not made an official announcement yet. So I, I was waiting on that you know, before I started. But um, yeah, I, I spoke with him as well, and he said it was fun to talk about it. But um, yeah, Under the Trestle is in development as a documentary. Scott McTavish and McTavish, Pic- McTavish Pictures, as you probably know, has a you know background producing feature-length documentaries. Probably the most noteworthy was several years ago, uh, a documentary called uh, Murph the Protector about uh, Michael Murphy, who was the Navy SEAL that the story uh, Lone Survivor was based on. Um, but he did a doc- documentary about Murph's life, which was just outstanding. And this is among Scott's other work and other films he's done. Murph the Protector was uh, shortlisted for an Academy Award in, in several Academy Award nominations in several categories. Scott got in contact with me shortly after the book came out. He happens to be from the New River Valley area originally, you know, when he was young, you know, wanted to bring the story, bring Gina Hall's story to the to the screen. One of the things that we're talking about, you know, is true crime is so big on on the streaming services on Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, HBO Go, all those services. It seems like there's new ones popping up all the time. They are always looking for true crime content. So we talked about uh, either what they would call a four by sixty or four by ninety, which would be four episodes. So this story could potentially start with uh, the first episode being kind of the bio of Gina Hall and of Stephen Epperly, the good, the bad, kind of sort of the angel and the devil kind of thing, which is parallel that a lot of people make. Um, then the second one being the, the night of the murder, what happens then, some of the questions that still remain. The third episode being the trial, you know, certainly one of the most fascinating trials of, of the 20th century, you know, in Virginia or even in the country. And then the fourth being, you know, where is Gina? It would pick up with the search for her remains. You know, I think anyone who's read the book, they, you know, would would feel that would, would make for a compelling documentary series. And then uh, what's been an interesting thing is I've uh, one thing I've done, you know, since the book came out over the past year in 2019 we did a lot of lot of lectures with the people that were involved in the case. Everett Shockley, the prosecutor, Austin Hall, who is the lead investigator, 
as well as Eppley's two defense attorneys, Woody Lookabill and Dave Warburton, who were all gracious enough to come out and give lectures on, on the case, you know, with me. But we met a lot of people who, who kind of filled in some blanks. People have come forward that knew Gina, who shed, shed a light on some of the things. And even a couple of people who served time in prison with, with Epperly, who have, who, who we got to know, who attended an event for the book and, you know, would share vignettes and stories that would, you know, I think would really be fascinating in the documentary. Then as well as, you know, some of the, some of the leads in the search for Gina, which obviously not come to fruition, but were, you know, were fascinating in, in that respect. So um, we're looking, uh, hopefully by by mid year or toward the end of the year, you know, we'll, Scott will actually get underway with that, and uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. We were talking, Kristen and I were talking about this case and about your book, and one of the things that Kristen said was, "This is such a fascinating case, but it takes a while to really lay out everything that happened and the way the evidence came together and so on." And it's funny. I commented the other day when we were prepping for this conversation, I said, I'm not sure they can do this in an hour and a half documentary. So I think the, the four by 60 limited television series could be a great format. I mean, this is a show I would very much like to watch. Yeah. Well, thank you. (laughs) So your audience, your audience is building as, as we speak. Absolutely. Thanks to you guys. It sure is. (laughs) So uh, I know that you, in addition to the documentary, you do have another project that you've been working on that's about to come out, and that is your newest book, Chasing the Squirrel. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, please? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for asking. In one of my first interviews, you know, as I was talking with Austin Hall, again, he's a retired state police officer who was the lead investigator in the Gina Hall case. But Austin and I were were having lunch, and and. He said, you know, hey, if, if this book turns out all right, I've got another case for you to write about. And I said, oh, really? You know, what's that? He proceeded to tell me this fascinating story. It's amazing because it happened in, in this same area, you know, in the New River Valley in southwest Virginia. In the 70s and 80s, there was a drug smuggling pilot by the name of Wally Thrasher, who is this really charismatic, larger than life, almost like a Burke Reynolds kind of character. He was a daredevil pilot. He would fly plane loads of drugs, mostly marijuana, from South America and the Caribbean, first into Florida. But then when Florida got too hot with drug interdiction and the feds, he would fly the drugs straight into Virginia, where they were then distributed, you know, up north to northern states. But he did it throughout the 70s and 80s, which was just tremendous longevity for, for a drug smuggler. His nickname was The Squirrel. And where does it, wait, where, where does the nickname come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, he was he was elusive. He was able to scurry away from trouble uh, like a squirrel. He originally got the nickname uh, on the on the football field in high school. Interestingly enough, so good good sports tie in there. As the uh, as the eighties went on, another part of the story is his wife. Her name was Olga Thrasher. She was Portuguese-born, really uh, attractive, you know, outgoing wife. So in 84, finally, the state police got the evidence to move forward and indict him when a plane he had crashed into Fancy Gap Mountain Don't you with hate, one of his pilots on board. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, full of, full of marijuana. Uh, all burnt, just about all of it burnt to a crisp. And um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Did this poor pilot survive or not? Well, there were two pilots on the plane. One miraculously survived, and uh, the other was was killed. Yeah. But then, when when the feds moved forward, then the federal authorities got involved, the DEA and 
Department of Justice. But Wally Thrasher faked his own death and believes in another plane crash. There was a, a fake death certificate, and authorities later came to learn the crash was staged. What a he great, made it look like his body was. What a great it, crazy? story! This is unbelievable. Yeah. If you were wow. if you were writing fiction, it couldn't get any more weird. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that's what I said. And then, then it gets better. And then, uh, <laughs> Wait, then, uh, there's more. <laughs> that's right. So then, uh, then his wife, Olga, who was, you know, was left behind, um, to some degree, she picks up the reins of, of his empire and is involved with that. The, uh, the DEA presses charges against her. She's facing time in prison. So she becomes a federal informant helps a DEA agent by the name of Don Lincoln do a, a really daring undercover operation. And about a year later, when all said and done, you know, based on Olga's information as an informant, they make the largest drug bust in the history of the Mid-Atlantic States in 86, arrest uh, 12 international drug traffickers from, you know, from out of the country who are just, you know, moving amazing amounts of, of drugs into, into the U.S., then the book kind of circles back, and there's the question, you know, is Wally Thrasher still alive, maybe living on a, on a beach in some, you know, island in the Caribbean? He'd be 80 now. So it's got a, it's got a pretty cool little D.B. Cooper element to it as well. It sure sounds like a great story. So was Olga not on board with the, with the faked death part of the story? She, by all indications, she was not. I, I spent a lot of time interviewing her. She was, was very forth, forthcoming, shared a lot of information. She believes that Wally is dead. She believes the crash was real. She, she knew the death certificate was fake, but I guess without giving too much away. It was a little bit little bit complicated, I guess, with that. The happy ending to the story is she lived the rest of her life on the straight and narrow, you know, was very successful, raised two kids that are very successful now. In fact, Wally Thrasher's son, who was six years old at the time of his alleged death, Montana Thrasher is now a police officer in Georgia. Also, you know, he's done a lot of investigating and shared a lot of a lot of his information with me in writing the book. And they both wanted the story told, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly about about the squirrel. That is fascinating. It's a wow. great story. Yeah. By the way, I don't yeah. want it. To, if, I don't want it to go past be passed unnoticed that Montana Thrasher is a really cool name. Oh my god, <laughs> Isn't that that's cool? a great name. Yes, Sounds like indeed. a professional wrestler yeah. or something. Yes, indeed. And if if you Google Wally Thrasher's name, there's one of the things that will come up is a YouTube clip of an unsolved mystery segment from the from the nineties that, that featured him on on the television show Unsolved Mysteries. And now also America's Most Wanted. So he was uh, quite quite the resources were put into finding Wally Thrasher. It sounds like a great book. I cannot wait to read this. So when will this come out? Still undergoing a final round of publishing with, with my, my editor. We're hoping by um, by the end of March, early April. But oh, that's um great. There's a yeah, yeah, thank you. There's a website, the chasing the squirrel book dot com. And then it's also on, on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I'll be announcing the, the release date as we get closer. I was picturing you, you know, when the idea for Chasing the Squirrel came up, I was picturing you responding, yeah, I'll write anything as long as I don't have to interview 100 people for my oh, next man. book. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and you know, I, I, and full disclosure, you know, I say interview. A lot of those were just, you know, short phone conversations, you know, maybe half hour or an hour. A lot of the interviews weren't actually sitting down with people, but I did, uh, I did make a point to say there were over, over 100 sources for the, for the book. 
That's amazing. That is that is amazing. You had mentioned that you do have that you do occasionally do events, live events uh, regarding the book. Do you have any local events that are coming up that anyone who's listening here locally could go to? I don't have any set up yet, but I will. Both, you know, both in Hampton Roads, where I'm from, as well as out in Southwest Virginia, where it's funny, but he's kind of a, a folk hero of sorts. You know, you hate to say that about a marijuana smuggler, but in Roanoke and Southwest Virginia, you know, there's still a lot of people that talk about him. So yeah, I'll definitely be doing some of those events. Some of the law enforcement officers who pursued him, there's a U.S. Marshal and also a state police special agent who are going to come to some of those events and they'll, they'll share some of their stories that, you know, that didn't make the book about doing that. And then also, um, I think down in Atlanta, his son, Montana, who, you know, shared a lot of his info with the book, will be talking a little bit about his father. You know, he, he was six years old when his father disappeared or died, but I think he's going to help me promote the book at some appearances down in Atlanta as well. Part of me wants to still picture Wally Thrasher with a with a, a drink with a with an umbrella on it on some <laughs> tropical beach somewhere. Absolutely, I guess yes, it's indeed. possible. With, uh, it, it is indeed. Yeah, he was he was a very resourceful guy. It's uh, you know when you you read the book and hear some of the stories about him, you can you can see and an interesting thing in that time frame, the seventies and the eighties, there were more than a few people in the drug trade who are believed to have disappeared and, uh, you know, left the country and have not been seen again. So he would, he would not be the first. That is, that is unreal. Yeah. Uh, and we would love it if you would come back on mind over murder and, <laughs> uh, and talk to us more about Wally Thrasher once the book comes out. Absolutely. It would be an honor. He sounds like a fascinating character and we know it's going to be a, a, a terrific book on a little bit more serious note. As you move forward with the television limited series or documentary, do you think that you and Scott McTavish will revisit the idea of interviewing Stephen Epperly? Definitely. I'm sure that we will. You always try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And, you know, certainly if I were him, I'd, I'd want a chance to tell my side of the story. You know, I, I would hope he'd do that. So, yeah, I think kind of a fresh approach to him. I, I would certainly hope that, that he would be willing to share any information he has for sure. Where is he currently incarcerated? Gosh, he's he's had he's been all over the state. You know, gosh, just about any prison you can imagine. But mm -hmm. the last I heard, he was at Buckingham Prison. He was several years ago was at uh, Bland County Correctional Facility, which is in southwest Virginia, was kind of close to his home where he was from. And it's kind of a medium security prison, you know, for someone on a life sentence for murder to be at. And then got in some trouble there, among other things, uh, possession of contraband. It was sent to Buckingham. I think this was about three or four years ago, uh, which is a more maximum security prison with, with less privilege and certainly a worse environment. Right. And he's got to be like 68 years old or so now? Yeah, he is 66 the last I checked. He came up for parole this past summer for geriatric parole and was denied parole. He'll come back up again for parole in another three years. The parole board, the book gets into that a little bit. But, you know, it's a five-person board appointed by the governor of Virginia. You know, you need three out of five votes to, to be paroled. So the, the Hall family, obviously, is, as, as well as just about everyone else I've talked to are, you know, adamant that he not get parole. So every time he comes up, they're just, you know, deluged with letters, a lot of letters, you know, insisting that he not be given parole and have um, 
unfortunately, you know, followed through on that. The one thing I wanted to ask you about, too, was this dynamic where you've had access to both sides of the prosecution, um, both the prosecution and the defense, as well as the investigators and so on. What's the dynamic like for his two former defense attorneys when they come out and they speak about the case? I mean, are they limited in what they can say? I mean, he sounds you know, guilty as hell, but they obviously had to provide a vigorous defense. That's their job. How much are they able to say, or what's their tone like? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that, and I'm, I'm glad you asked it. The, the two attorneys, um, the one in particular, David Warburton, who's still in private practice in Pulaski with an office not far from where it was back in 1980, he is very quick to point out that he can't talk about certain things due to attorney-client privilege. In fact, I, I made the mistake of referencing the body in my questions to him, and he said, you know, now stop right there, Ron. When you say the body, I can't even acknowledge that there was a body. <laughs> so oh, I said, okay, that's okay. interesting. That's interesting. So, interesting. Yeah. yeah. It, he shares a lot of vignettes from it. And then the other attorney, Woody Lookabill, who uh, later became a judge, who's now a retired judge, but you know, was just, just an outstanding judge, uh, circuit court judge in that part of the state. He'll share a little more. For example, he, in one of the presentations we gave at Radford University for the Criminal Justice Department, he acknowledged the body and even presented a theory on where he thought it, you know, it might be. Um, where did he think he it was? Someone, well, someone uh, he knew who he felt had some credibility said that Epperly burnt it up in an incinerator in Radford. Yeah, which is, is um, you know, terrible to think of, you know, for, for many reasons. So, yeah, Woody Lookabill will talk a little more, you know, about it. What what I did not realize until I really wrote the book and had an understanding is that they they both did an outstanding job representing him. And the case was scrutinized, you know, went through a series of about six state and federal appeals uh, with the Virginia Supreme Court and then went to the, you know, federal court of appeals. And the conviction was upheld every step of the way due to the fact that they did such an outstanding job representing him. Um, that was their job to do it, and they, they certainly did a great job. This other person that you suspect may have been involved in moving the body and helping dispose of it, I was very excited reading the book when you mentioned several people that m- might have provided him some level of assistance. And then, of course, I'm disappointed as I continue reading and discover they're deceased. <laughs> and, you know, so you're always like, oh, you know, kind of let down. Do you think there's any possibility that his accomplice, possible accomplice, could still be alive and out there and carrying around this information? I, I think that's a, a good possibility, yeah, as as well as another scenario I sort of envision is the person that a lot of the investigators and police officers point to is the most likely accomplice uh, was a guy named Tom Hardy, who's a Blacksburg businessman, mm-hmm. heavily involved in the drug trade. In fact, a lot of people suspect that Epperly was kind of Although Epperly was not involved in using drugs, he may have been the muscle for this guy's, you know, drug sales uh, operation. But at any rate, Tom Hardy was someone he drank a lot. He did a lot of drugs. And I think there's a chance when he was in a, you know, in that state of mind, either drunk or high at some point, you know, people talk. He may have said something to somebody at a party somewhere and that person doesn't even know it's relevant to the case. Right. So even though Hardy himself is dead, you think that if Hardy shared information while intoxicated with someone, that person could come forward and at least give an indication of what Hardy said back then. 
Yeah, yes, I think there's a possibility of that, and then several law enforcement officers have, have said it too, so it's not an original thought by, by, by any means, but for me, so yes. If we do have any listeners, because a number of people have actually brought this up to us and said, hey, when are you guys going to cover the Gina Renee Hall case? Uh, if there's anyone listening who does have information that they feel might be of value, who should they send that to? The Virginia State Police, I will... In fact, I'll post on the website and the social media, you know, the, the contact information. It's been too long since I've done that, but I'll share that. But just a general call to the Virginia State Police, you know, would um, would be, be good for that. And we're, Absolutely. We're happy to share that in our, what we call our show notes for the podcast. If there are, if there's a specific office or phone number they should be contacting or email we're happy to include that because you never know, as Kristen said, somebody out there might know something. Absolutely, yeah. And the, you know, as you both know too, there's a good chance someone has a piece of information and they don't even know that it, it's critical. You know, it's something that they think is just trivial when in reality it could be a missing piece of the puzzle. Ron, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and sharing your wonderful stories, um, both about the Gina Renee Hall case and the Wally Thrasher case. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. And, and best of luck to you both. I, I really enjoy your podcast as well. Oh, well, thank you. We'll talk thank soon. Thank you. We appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mind Over Murder. You can listen to Mind Over Murder on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And a reminder that we're a new podcast and we very much appreciate your subscriptions and your kind comments and reviews. Thank you so much for listening to Mind Over Murder. We'll see you next time. Sources used in this week's episode include Reporting from the Radford News Journal The Roanoke Times The Charlie Project Under the Trestle by Ron Peterson Jr. WDBJ7 WFXR WTOP and W.Y. Daily. Mind Over Murder is a production of Absolute Zero and Another Dog Productions. Our executive producers are Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. Our logo art is by Pamela Arnois. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Mind Over Murder is distributed in partnership with Crawl Space Media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also follow our page on the Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook. And finally, you can follow Bill Thomas on Twitter at BillThomas56. Thank you for listening to Mind Over Murder. <laughs>